Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist, and I am joined as ever by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I write about film for a bunch of different places, and uh, occasionally I direct plays. <laughs> <laughs> Sam is playing it down. This yeah. is, we've, we've just had a morning chat. This is, a, I think, the earliest podcast in the day we've recorded so far. It is indeed, yes. Um, and Sam had a, a little screening of his first feature. Yes. Which we probably can't talk about too much. We can't. Very excited um, to but, be. Yeah, but yeah. yeah um, to be in the it, loop. <laughs> it's, uh, it's finished. It's uh, being watched by people. And it's all very exciting. Uh, very proud of it. And James's hard work. James Swanton, that is, the writer and star. Amazing. But anyway, we are not here to talk about Frankenstein's creature. Nice. We are here <laughs> to talk about <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise, which yeah. I am incredibly excited about. <laughs> I am. I'm going to be honest with you, uh, dear listener. I'm slightly concerned about how Dan reacted to this film. It, it was. Um, we take it in turns to 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 make choices. Usually, though, uh, the, these next two are slightly different. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, Phantom of the Paradise was my choice. Dan, how did you feel about it? So, <laughs> I feel that Phantom of the Paradise falls into. A category of it being important at what point in your life you see it first. Uh, I this is what I was worried about, uh, and I hadn't seen Phantom of the Paradise before. In fact, this and next ones, which yes. I won't go into too much, were both first watches for me. Yes, I'm um, very concerned about this. I I didn't hate Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> there but, were elements of it that I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. It felt incredibly empty. Oh, really? Like it didn't. Like it's. There's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of ideas going on and there's a lot of stuff happening, but at its core, it's actually quite hollow. Like uh, it, it, it does a big walk about being a being about loneliness and hunger for success and revenge and all these things. But I don't feel it ever really does more than scratch the surface of any of them. Mm -hmm. And compared to De Palma's other stuff, when he really got his teeth into some of these themes, because it is very obviously De Palma, like it's dripping with De Palma's stuff. Yes. It does feel very young. Now, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's sort of part of a, a segment of his career where he was kind of a bit more subversive in a different way. He's always been subversive. Um, yeah. But here he's kind of, for me, like I, I normally hate rock opera, right? Um, <laughs> I, I do not get on with Tommy. Sorry, listeners. I do not get on with Rocky Horror. Sorry, listeners. Um, which both came out... Well, now I've got to change both my recommendations. <laughs> I, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, which, which both came out a, a year after after this one. But yeah, this really works for me because it feels like De Palma has a sense of humour about the whole thing. Um, like even making this movie is kind of a, a rebellious act for him. And it kind of fits in with that subversive atmosphere of his kind of earlier movies where back then the kind of rebellion and the sort of anti-authority stuff was much more on the surface in, in yeah. terms of the narrative. Whereas I think he took that anti-authoritarian feeling and sort of sank it deeper into his films and his later films, where yeah. he's kind of trying to piss off his critics in a way. Well, yeah, and I, to be honest, I think that might be part and part of what I was saying, yeah. which is that it, it did feel a bit reactionary. Yes. And jumping, as we so often do, straight into the the extras on the disc, it was interesting to hear people talking about, like, so obviously when you watch it, and we all know De Palma loves Hitchcock, and we all know that there's always going to be some Hitchcock stuff there, yeah, and yeah. the shower scene is a is a blatant Hitchcock 
uh, reference, albeit more of a pastiche than an homage in this instance. But what I didn't know was that um, it was put in there specifically to piss off people who complained about sisters being too Hitchcocky. Yeah. So, and that kind of makes, like, the whole thing feels a bit like a teenager saying, fuck you, I'm not going to do what you tell me. Totally. And, and, and I saw it as, as a younger and, man. And yeah, and so. I think that that speaks to you about it. And again, all the way through the interviews, like looking at Paul Williams talking about where he was in his career and yeah. how he felt about his life at that point and how yeah, he got yeah. into music and all of these guys talking about stuff it makes sense that this is the message that they all had inside them absolutely and i kind of love that like you know obviously it's a satire of the music industry um but that's not a million miles away from the film industry you know both have that struggle between artists and the money men um both have some rotten contracts floating around both exploit passion and and in that sort of that documentary um de palma talks about that struggle between art and commerce very eloquently i think and you know I, i i feel like yeah, as a kind of snapshot of where he was at this point in his career. It feels like a turning point, basically. It feels like the 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 end of something, you know, before he goes into Carrie and before he sort of goes to the next level. Yeah. Where later on, I mean, De Palma is an incredibly brave director, so he still made risks all throughout his career, but he kind of grew out of this, I guess. And, yeah. and that, that does feed into your point. Yeah, I think Carrie was him kind of realising what he could get if he stopped fucking about. Yeah. But I and would it's fucking say... fucking amazing, and please listen of course, to our yeah. podcast it's, about it. Because, it's incredible. Yeah. But I'd say... Our podcast or the film? Both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about the film, but... <laughs> but both. I can jump rails on that easy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I feel that... Like, I think Sisters is a is a tighter film than this. Oh, definitely. And, and yeah, so yeah. I feel, to some extent, this is a step down. But like I said, it's... Like, so many of these films, if you don't see them at the right age, mm. either because of who they speak to as an audience or because of where they fit into the world of cinema and what comes before and what comes after. It's so easy to miss a film that is massively influential, either because it was made before you were born or because you didn't see it at the time or yeah. whatever, and then to go back to it and to know deep down inside that everything you love is influenced by this. Yes, exactly. But to still have it feel like it's not the original, to have it feel like it's borrowing from the things that came later... And I'm not saying that that was particularly a problem with this, although it was very interesting to see how many things were obviously like sort of how close it was to things. Like you say, like Rocky Horror came so quickly afterwards. Yeah. Um, and uh, talking about the kiss makeups that were like so, the, it's more sort of German expressionist with an edge so, of kiss. So yeah, there's there's um, the, the the band in the film, well, it's different bands ostensibly, but it's the same. The same band rebranded. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so at one point in the film, they become a band called The Undead, who have like a kind of horror aesthetic. Well, it's very Cabinet um, Dr. Caligari, isn't it? Very Dr. Caligari in terms of like the production design. And yeah, the the production design is quite interesting in this film. Um, it's by a guy named Jack Fisk. Yeah. Um, who's done stuff for Terrence Malick, David Lynch, Paul Thomas Anderson. And um, yeah, his sets are absolutely wonderful in the film and yeah there is that sort of Caligari set piece and so in the disc they talk about who came up with it first don't they was it yeah they they in a couple of places they talk about that yeah it's yeah because this was so when by the time this came out Kiss had just happened but then obviously this had been going into production for a while before and then it turns out that Paul Williams knows some of the guys in Kiss so there's a connection there mm. so although he says he's never asked them whether <laughs> whether they uh, borrowed it 
but apparently they accused yeah um, De Palma of nicking their yeah. of yeah, biting yeah. their style. So yeah, come who, on, who fucking knows? Um, and and yeah, it, again, it's interesting that you say it's the work of a, of a sort of slightly immature talent potentially. Um, Pauline Kale absolutely loved this film um, and she was one of the, the few people to love it at the mm. time. I'm just going to read you a little bit from her review. So uh, De Palma is the only filmmaker to have come up from the underground and gone on for years working the same way with a larger budget. In 1963, I was on the jury at the Midwest Film Festival which gave a prize to Wotton's Wake, a 28-minute film he made in 16mm when he was still a student has many of the same elements as Phantom, figures running from skyscrapers, parodies of early horror films. It even had the same William Finley, and it was funny in much the same corny off-the-wall way. What it didn't have was rock. So, how did you feel about the music? In the I actually film? quite like the music. Me too. It's um, fantastic. It's, it's by far from the best incidental music soundtrack to a movie where the music is part of it, so this diegetic yeah. soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's the best. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was... Pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I thought at her best, Jessica Harper sounded like Joan Baez, which is always going to yeah, be a win absolutely. for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very much so. Uh, yeah, there were, I mean, there were a few duds in there, but it was pretty good. And obviously, they did well getting themselves someone like Paul Williams to come in and write the songs. Yeah. Because if you get someone who's... The biggest... The thing that would have made me hate this would be if everyone was fucking mooning about how this is the greatest song and it's worth fucking people over for and it's the next big thing and everything. And then if it was just bullshit, you know? Yeah. It's, and yeah, maybe it's not quite as good as they're saying, but it's good. See, and, well... It's I, certainly enjoyable. And I, 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 and I, I like that there's sort of... There's a bit of layering there in that um, we never kind of... I mean, obviously we, we hear him play the song at the start, but... His, his rock opera is like, what is it, like 200 pages long yeah. or something like that. And I like the fact that they make their own versions and they make slightly cheesy versions yeah. of, of his original stuff. So I think there's even kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek joke going oh, on Oh, absolutely. Well, well, De Palma says the entire film was inspired by hearing a Muzak version of a Beatles yeah, track. In a, in a lift, And yeah, it's like, exactly. oh, you've taken this great work of art and you've just churned it down into this, like, mulch. That's exactly it. Um, so so they are, yeah, they're, they're kind of aware of that. And Paul Williams is a, an interesting guy. He went on to play the Penguin in Batman, the animated series, yeah. and he uses kind of a, a similar voice in that, that that he developed here. And the fact he played the Penguin is kind of appropriate for Phantom because the film's obviously full of bird pastiches. He plays <laughs> Swan, Jessica Harper is Phoenix, and the, the Phantom's mask looks like a weird bird. But yeah, he also wrote... Uh, we've only just begun for the yeah. Carpenters. Well, exactly. And uh, but it, but and you... Rainbow Connection for the Muppet movie. Yes, indeed. And there is kind of a Muppety vibe to this film, I think. It's a Muppety vibe to Paul Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Dan said that, lawyers. Um, I can neither confirm nor That's deny. That's an entirely subjective statement. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the, the prosecution rests. Um, yeah, I don't know, like... De Palma has a sense of humour, basically. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a funny film, and it, it, I love even... I mean, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but I loved, when I was younger and, and still to this day, um, the psycho pastiche where he's got a plunger. Oh, no, but that, <laughs> see, though, that's the problem, is that I didn't find the jokes particularly funny. Right, either, fair. Which I found odd. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think... Yeah, De Palma's got a very interesting sense of humour, and you can see it in all of his films. And, you know, watching this this time, like, I've always had this kind of this sense somewhere in my subconscious that this was true but it really sort of came to the fore watching this for some reason 
blowout has the structure of a really mean, dark joke. It's the whole thing is a joke, yeah. basically, but the darkest joke ever told. And this has a lot of con- that kind of dark humour. And I like I like that side of like it. Like what happens to the protagonist? What happens to the Phantom? Is you know fucking weird and you mean up. at the end of the first act? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I watched this with Jen. Oh, and, okay, yeah. Uh, my she wife. Uh, she. I, I think she's enjoyed it slightly more than me. <laughs> right. It's. I don't know. It's an interesting one. It, she instantly squealed at that moment. Yeah. At, at the Phantom's bit. The, the the beginning of the transform. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, which which was which, the scream is real. Um, because there was a mistake of production and um, his head got crushed for real. But you can see the foam surfaces bending as they touch him. I don't believe that. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. It's true. Fair enough. Well, reportedly true. <laughs> yeah, a lot of great stories around films being made. They get told and told and told until they sort of replace the truth. Yeah, I think one of the things that is very difficult to dislike about the film one of the things that makes it endearing is that it's one of those movies where it looks like everyone's having a great time yeah yeah for sure um, and it's very easy to get sort of swept up in that and it's all a bit big bit of fun and I think that's the same as the appeal to something like Rocky Horror where the people that like that um, and I definitely liked it as a teenager and I don't particularly care for it now which I think again speaks to the idea that there are times in your life when you can see this stuff and it feels to it speaks to your internal voice your you know various struggles whatever they are for sure but what's interesting is if you pick through the extras and all everyone talking about this, most of them seem to be ill or just not having an amazing time a lot of the time. Whether it's being allergic to your costume as the Phantom, instantly, don't think he was allergic to the costume, think he was being poisoned by silver spray paint in the helmet. Um, yeah, yeah. My, migraines from a silver head headgear in the in the seventies. That's yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That, I know what that is. Yeah, um, worth it though. What a mask. Yeah. Um, or whether it's Garrett Graham being like can't walk because he's so fever ill yeah. when performing his and big number. Getting turned down by the conservative dancing girls. That's yeah, a- that story felt like I know the whole thing's meant to be like a lambasting of the gross usurious nature of the music industry, but yeah. there were some anecdotes in some of those where it's like like Con- the girls, concerning. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the girls from the Methodist University were uncomfortable with the skimpy outfits they were being asked to wear. And so, like, uh, and Garrett's like, and they were so square that we had to run out and find them pants. <laughs> <laughs> like, underwear, underpants. Uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's more that... Um, the, the, they thought the, the feathers looked like pubes. Looked so like, they, I was going to say merkins, but yeah. <laughs> they um, say pubic hair in the, oh, right, in the okay, interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can say pubic hair, Sam. We can, actually. We say, we say all sorts on this podcast. Um... Apart from that, though, I do want to shout out to Garrett Graham um, on that documentary, and um, particularly the way that he occasionally, for no reason at all... Drops into French. Drops into French. Well, I noticed that some of the introduction plates weren't in English. Yeah. So I suspect... I, I, I don't know, maybe that... I thought that disc was originally done for a French disc, because Paris is one of the places it did really fucking well. When you hear about it being a flop everywhere, there's yeah, like yeah. one city in America and Paris. It was yeah. huge. And so I think it that did well that in, in in the UK as well. I think, but um, not enough to be right. mentioned in the same breath as those two as yeah. the outliers for how successful it sure, was. Sure, sure. And so I think that that interview, that documentary, may have originally been done for a French disc. Yeah, uh, of course. Which is why, but, he, and he speaks French, so he's being absolutely. Inter- interview, interviewed he, for a French disc. So he, he just he's does fluent. It. In he's French, great. Yeah, it's right? amazing, and the accent uh, goes completely as well. When yeah, he's no, no, he, no, he's he. But what's interesting about it is that sure, if it was made for the French disc speak in French the whole time 
but it's the fact that he slips into French for absolutely no reason at all. Sometimes mid anecdote, <laughs> it's it's almost as if it's it rather than him doing it, you know, as part of the contract. Okay, and we're going to do your interviews in French and sometimes in English. It's more that <laughs> he's doing it to amuse himself. Um, That's possible, which I respect. He's he's very charismatic. I thought he he's absolutely fantastic. Also worth noting, he's uh, Bud the Chud. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is great. Like. Uh, he used to um, he used to check in to hotels under the pseudonym um, Bud Bud Chud I think Bud Chud um, yeah because uh, um, he's he's proud of that role he should be um, <laughs> I mean, well that's yeah maybe. so uh, as you say the film uh, Phantom has all of sort of De Palma's usual tropes you've got an assassination plot which he was kind of fascinated by some split screen stuff a lot of voyeurism um, voyeurism. Obviously, the Hitchcock pastiche, which you didn't like, but I did. And, <laughs> and obviously, postmodern references to, to loads of stuff like Faust and Dr. Caligari and Picture of Dorian Gray. Um, but it really does, it, it does have, it's almost like a, a, a party at the end of something for me, Phantom, in terms of his career, because he really did, you know, go in and grow up and go in a different direction after this film. But you know, for me, it's it's as important as some of his later stuff, um, and I can revisit it endlessly. For me, it kind of works like a perfect album in that each scene has kind of a unique energy and rhythm with a kind of sense of dynamic propulsion that connects it all. And yeah, I don't know. I I just I love this film, but I'm I'm, so, <laughs> I'm sorry you only liked it. Yeah, that, I'm well, glad you it. did because I was worried actually that you'd hate it. Because I know you don't like musicals particularly. I so the thing is, I'm a I'm a very hard sell for yeah. musicals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are a handful that I like, but they're very rarely everyone bursts into song. They're normally this kind of thing, right? Where sure. it's narratively relevant. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like I'm yeah I don't I don't. Well, the other thing is actually I I'm not a big fan of the form of musical theatre, like the types right. of songs, and yet. Like a lot of things I'm not particularly keen on, I've sort of tried to immerse myself in it enough and, mm. you know, given up now, but that I'm familiar with some of the tropes and the formats. Uh, there's a um, there's a couple of writers called John and Al Kaplan who do, uh, like, fake musicals. Oh, yeah. Uh, which are fantastic. Probably best known for a video that did the rounds a little while ago, which was a, a one-song musical version of The Thing, which is amazing. And if you can... It's on YouTube. Wow. They also did uh, Silence of the Lambs, the musical, which ended up going off Broadway in the States and is hilarious. And they're playing around with the tropes of musical theatre. And so especially when you listen to a bigger project of theirs, like uh, 24 Season 2, Episode 4, the musical, <laughs> uh, I, I think. It, it's, Amazing. It's, it's specific like that. It's not that episode. but um, And Silence of the Lambs, the musical, and that kind of stuff. Each of those songs is based on a type of song that exists within... The, like the the world of musical theatre um, and they're mocking it but I like the music enough in those that I can actually like I enjoy them mm. so I don't know why that doesn't work for me in the non-mocking arena of actual musical theatre mm. I like theatre I love music mm. um, and it turns out I quite like things taking the piss out of musical theatre again look at Cannibal the Musical or yeah. Alfred Packer the Musical Matt Stone and Trey Parker started off as musical theatre guys and again you know as grimy and as uh sort of low rent low fire as that movie is um they're like those songs are very much based in knowing how musical theatre works 
Yeah, that's and a lot of the musical cues in it and the, the way the songs are structured are on a sort of, on a really, like, on a skill level are taking the piss out of the form. Mm. And that's, and a lot of those jokes are based ex- like explicitly around being able to, like, recognise those musical formats. Mm. And I find that stuff really fun. Yeah. And, and there's, a, obviously, there's an air of that with this, um, where yeah. it's kind of yeah. taking the piss as, as much as it's sort of... But the songs themselves weren't, like I didn't feel like the songs were no, taking the piss that the, much. The, the songs, songs were proper, were and they were and they were good songs exactly. for the most part. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I've never been able to work out where my disconnect with musical theatre or or musicals films mm. are. I detested Walk the Line. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like Chicago at all. Like no, every time no. these things come to the big screen, like watching Walk the Line, I'm just like, why am I not listening to a Johnny Cash album? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. why do I want to listen to someone who isn't as good as Johnny Cash singing Johnny Cash songs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't know what my disconnect is there. But that mm. wasn't my. That was never my problem with this. Was the, the musical side of it was never my. Was never a, a stopper for yeah. me in Phantom of yeah. Paradise. Well, yeah, I, I'm. I'm glad you enjoyed it um, to a certain extent. Um, <laughs> what should we do? Recommendations based on this film? Yeah, recommendations. What do you have? Well, first? I, th- I think the first one might be a bit too obvious, but um, it's another Arrow title. Uh, it's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, okay, nice which one. is probably my favourite lambasting of the musical industry. Um, it's, it is the opposite as a career marker for a different director. It's Russ Meyer's most mainstream movie, mm-hmm. if you don't count the seven minutes, which is not great, <laughs> which is an extra feature on the, the Arrow special. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, yeah, it's great. I, I have the soundtrack to that. I listen to it in the workshop. At times, the the soundtrack to Phantom, which I presume is available, mm-hmm. um, will probably end up in my my playlist. Nice. I, I enjoyed it enough. For yeah. That. But yeah, Great. I'd say Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is a uh, is as crazy, if not crazier, than Phantom, mm-hmm. but in very different ways. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, that's a a great show. So my first recommendation, based on Phantom of the Paradise, is uh, one of my all-time favourite films, Toxic Avenger. <laughs> um, and nice. Yeah, I, I just feel that, you know, Phantom has a trauma atmosphere. Second trauma shout of the podcast. Um, in places, and yeah, it's... And yeah, kind of the, the Toxie, the, the creature in it, um, has kind of a similar-ish origin story um, in that, you know, he just suffers loads of horrible shit before he becomes the superhero. Yeah, I see that completely. Yeah, so it's got a similar vibe and, you know, I'm not going to go too much into the plot because it's called The Toxic Avenger, so you can probably guess um, from that. But if you haven't seen Toxic Avenger, oh my God, uh, for me, it is the best trauma movie. I can revisit it endlessly. Um, It's just sheer entertainment from start to finish. It's great, and it's the only film to be adapted into a children's animated <laughs> TV series that has a scene where a woman masturbates to a Polaroid of a child's crushed head. I mean, and if that doesn't <laughs> sell you on it... Yeah, man, like, the, the Toxie cartoon and, like, you know, bubblegum stickers and action figures and all the rest of it. Yeah. Absolutely insane. Well, the, but, the animated um, series pretty much bankrolled trauma yeah. throughout the, like, late 80s, 90s. yeah. Mainly because it had an amazing theme song like so many of those uh, 80s and 90s cartoons. But anyway, we're getting off the subject. And it was the time when they were introducing slime for toys as well, which yeah. worked really well for yeah, Toxie. totally. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, good Lord, get the Blu-ray, um, Toxic Avenger. Dan, what is your next recommendation based on this film? So I'm torn 
Are you going to make me do two or can I have three? Um, you can have three if I can have three. It yeah, means, you can have three. It means I have to think of one in the next two minutes. That's, but that's fine. fine. Yeah. This one was actually a suggestion from Jen. Right. It's a film we watched together, although I think she's seen it since with a production designer friend of ours as well. So it was sort of fresh in her mind. But it's the Peter Watkins film Privilege. Okay. From 67. It's a British music industry scathe. Mm-hmm. It's darker. Mm-hmm. by some margin mm-hmm. uh, and it's much more sort of drama than this is um but it's a nice like for all the ostentatiousness of a phantom it's the sort of the gritty british version uh, and it's about someone being taken to the top um and not having their art stolen from them but having their freedom and autonomy stolen from them uh, which is sort of the other great cheat that the music industry can can do to people mm. is rob them of their artistic value. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's really worth checking out. I think it's on BFI Flipside. Oh, nice. In the UK. Excellent. That sounds very good. Uh, I will add that to my watch list. Uh, my next official recommendation, i.e. one I haven't made up on the spot, is Nashville from 1975. Um, Robert Altman's uh, country musical, which is a must-see even if you hate country music. The songs are incredible, uh, but more incredible than that. Um, it's just millions of characters each is as compelling as the other and um the main plot if you can kind of call it that because you're kind of sort of getting a window into lots of musicians um and other people's lives um but it basically there's kind of an election going on in the background that kind of connects all of these characters that kind of weave in and out of each other's lives and it's very very similar to uh, phantom of the paradise in that it kind of mixes music and politics uh, in a way that I think is quite spoilery if I reveal um, what it is. So um, just watch Nashville and um, tweet tweet it to me when you have because it's a special film for me and uh, uh, relevant in this instance. Oh, and it's a, a major influence on Paul Thomas Anderson who obviously works with the production designer, Jack Fisk, who did Phantom, so it connects there as well. Okay, good. Nice. My, my next recommendation will not be as layered, as <laughs> connective as that one. Uh, my next one is a musical from 1999. Oh. Uh, directed by Tim Robbins. Oh. You seen this? The Cradle Will Rock? No, I have not. It's about the, um, it's about a leftist musical being planned in the States during the anti-communist uh, era. Uh, and it's fantastic. It's really, really enjoyable. It's very smartly written. It's got an amazing cast. Hank Azaria, Joan Cusack, um, and John Cusack. Carrie Elwes is in it. It's uh, Bill Murray's in it. It's it's a fantastic sort of ensemble piece about a theatre team mm. who all have political reasons for being involved in the thing. And it's about the... Uh, it's a sort of politically oriented, this show must go on uh, movie. And it's really, really worth checking out. Oh well, yeah, I I've, I have never seen that. So uh, this is it's a good week for me. Lots of, uh, can you? It's, Dan brings the musicals. Yeah, I, like bizarre. Like I've known Dan for a, a very long time, and uh, yes, I am surprised at his musical knowledge. It's never come up before. Um, I am going to recommend uh, one more musical, um, a, a Bollywood film. Uh, is my final recommendation that I've made up on the spot uh, from 1993, I think. 
and um, I, I remember it being around two and a half hours long. It might be slightly less, but um, it's, it's called... It's not going to be less. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's called The Monster. Have you seen The Monster? I haven't, no. Um, it's basically their rip-off of Nightmare on Elm Street. Amazing. Uh, and it kind of follows it really closely until it doesn't. Um, and it does have... I mean, it, it's entertaining in kind of a silly way because, you know, one of the things I kind of like about the, the Bollywood horror films is that tonally they are fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, you get, like, the silliest stuff. Like, I, this this film has, like, a Michael Jackson impersonator in it that, that works. Oh, in it. Yeah, I've so seen that. Seen yeah, it. I've seen that clip. Okay. I haven't seen the movie. Oh, right, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. do not expect that to be a tonal representation. That is, there is no single <laughs> moment in any Bollywood film you can get that's a tonal representation. Exactly. I did, a, um, I did a Bollywood spy movie. I did the effects for a Bollywood spy movie last year. And um, we, obviously, I'm, I just, I'm there for my bits. And then the trailer came up uh, recently and I watched it and I'm like, oh, okay, all right, fair <laughs> enough. This is, this is the movie. Yeah, so um, <laughs> the the monster does have like, you know, some genuinely scary things. It has lots of silly stuff. But I think, you know, Phantom of the Paradise obviously isn't as wildly tonally all over the place. There are tonal shifts, but, um, you know, it's not sort of Bollywood standard. Um, but if you like Phantom and if you like Nightmare on Elm Street, then, you know, why not watch them sort of combined in the monster? Um, there we go. Right. Past couple of weeks, Dan. What Past you couple of weeks. Um, well, my first recommendation is almost a musical. <laughs> Oh it's my not, God. I mean, it's not a musical. Who are but you? Music is very, it was very central to my enjoyment of it, certainly. It's a movie from 2008. It's a directorial debut from Uros Stajanovic, mm. who I think is Serbian. Uh, it's his only film. Uh, he died last year, sadly. Mm. He had quite an exciting project in pre production when he died. Um, but his first film was called Tears for Sale. Uh, it's a. So if you like. Early Jean-Pierre Jeunet, if you like mid-career Luc Besson. It was Luc Besson's company, Europa, that picked it up for distribution, actually. Okay, cool. Um, and if you like um, Emir Kusturica, then this kind of fits into that. Although it it has a more digital feel, like it's a more now film, stylistically, um, but it manages to hit that slightly, slightly holy grail place of digital effects where they have the same type of endearing quality when they don't work as physical effects, which is not normal for digital effects at all. But anyway, it's essentially, it's set uh, in the early 1900s. Civil war has destroyed the region. Uh, there are no men left. Uh, there's like one super old dude in the village. Uh, their uh, vineyard that the village relies on for its income is a minefield, literally a minefield, and they have to draw sticks, draw straws to go and pick grapes from it, and people get blown up on the reg. And uh, two young women who are given the dubious opportunity of being impregnated by the last remaining man in the village accidentally kill him and are almost burnt as witches and then strike a deal to go and get a man from somewhere else in the country and bring him back so that the village doesn't die. It's fantastic realism. It's got ghosts. It's got magic. It's got tears born of the... the it's got lakes born of the tears of the widows who've been who've had their men not come back from war. It's got a great soundtrack. And it's, um, yeah, sort of... It, yeah, it's all over the place. It's it's absolutely mad. It, it loses its way a little bit towards the end. 
um, like a lot of those slightly crazier films do. But it's definitely, definitely worth checking out. It's not like anything that's really being made elsewhere mm. at the moment. Um, and it's really, really enjoyable. Oh, by the way, their job is professional mourners. Oh, wow. They, they go and wail at funerals for people, which is oh, a sort wow. of a cultural thing. Amazing. Um, so they, yeah, they professionally weep oh, to, wow. uh, to, to help the dead find their way to the afterlife. Oh, man. I've it's, got, yeah, it's a great film. I've got so many personal recommendations from this episode. That is great. My first one from the past couple of weeks is uh, a Simon Rumley film called Fashion Easter, um, which is available on VOD platforms now. I saw it just before, but um, it's available to everybody now. And I cannot recommend you download it enough. It's kind of a, a mixture of uh, horror film, uh, psychological drama, and it actually has a, a, a little bit of a De Palma vibe as well. So I think if you're listening to this podcast, it's sort of more later De Palma stuff than, than Phantom, but... Um, it also reminded me of uh, Robert Altman's Three Women and Fassbinder's Fear of Fear. So uh, if you know me from this podcast, you know that, uh, that I've no, I placed this in high esteem by comparing it to those people. And, and I, I compare it to those films because uh, its structure and stylization feels kind of more representative of a psychological state than a straight narrative. Um, the, the narrative is um, basically a, a woman uh, who, who works in like a, a secondhand clothes store, like, you know, one of those typical kind of hipster beyond retro style places where, you know, it's full of uh, cool clothes and she's kind of addicted to clothes and, um, you know, wears a different outfit almost from frame to frame, let alone scene to scene. Um, and she kind of lives in a, a flat with her boyfriend where she's completely surrounded by clothes. And then something happens uh, that takes the narrative into a, a different direction and it becomes a very different film before becoming a very different film again. And that's kind of represented in the, the character's evolution as well. But the, the kind of the fractured mentality of the lead is represented by the fractured camera work and, um, you know, the, the grade even. Like, um, there's a sequence that kind of reminds me of... Do you know much about Lomography? Do you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Um, I, I don't their know if brick and mortar stores are going now, but they yeah. were, they had their peak about five six years ago. I yeah, guess, exactly. They? Yeah, and um, for anyone out there that isn't aware of it, it's basically um, cameras that use film um, that can do all sorts of like weird stuff. And they they sold a camera where um, it basically had color filters on the, on, on the flash. Yeah. yeah, so you sort of twisted a nozzle. And you've got a red shot, you twisted the thing, you've got a yellow shot, blue shot. And there's a sequence in this film that really reminds me of that camera. <laughs> like, right. if you go on a night out with that camera, you would get back, you know, this, this film, this, this film in, in, <laughs> in places. But, but yeah, Simon Rumley, if you're not aware of him, a British director, I mean, you should be aware of him, but just in case you're not, um, he is kind of a master at representing um, psychological states on film. And he's one of our most interesting directors. And I really, really love this film. So, um, Fashionista. Nice. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen it. I saw you talking about it on social media. I will definitely, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Fantastic. I am split about some of Romney's output, but it's always interesting, certainly. And yeah. yeah, I'm definitely going to give it a go. Cool. My next one uh, is from last year. It's a martial arts film. Uh, from 2017. It's directed by Yen Wu Ping, who's probably more famous as a stunt choreographer and stunt artist, but has been directing since 78. Mm. Uh, it's done some of my favourite 
uh, non-sure <laughs> martial arts films. Mm-hmm. Did some really, really good... It, uh, did uh, Magnificent Butcher, Miracle Fighters, that kind of stuff. This is The Thousand Faces of Dunjiar, mm. uh, which is written by um, and produced by Sway Hark, mm-hmm. uh, who I might be one of the first names who wasn't an actor who I knew in Asian cinema, martial arts cinema from Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, which I think I probably saw when I was like, you know, 13 or so. Mm. And I was like, okay, this guy's got an amazing imagination. There's some great stuff here. Um, And then he really embraced digital early on and the sequel to Zoo, which was very exciting, which is just called Zoo, Z-U, was just bullshit. (laughs) Just (laughs) horrible, horrible, like cheap digital effects. And what's interesting is that this is still saturated in not amazing digital effects. Right. But not unlike the sort of overlays of Tears for Sale, it manages to be mostly quite endearing. The design's good enough and the interaction's good enough. And then the story is fun enough. It's mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's not a particularly challenging movie. It's very all over the place because it's world-building. Like, it's mm. obviously setting itself up for a franchise. Mm. Um, but it's really, really fun. Uh, it's, it's a pretty classic martial arts trope. Uh, an ancient evil of some kind is awakened and various clans that we didn't know were living among us mm. have to come together to save humanity Chef's from kiss. from the awful. But, I love it. And it, but it's also it's set in sort of oldie China. It's not yeah, not yeah. set in modern day, so obviously it's cooler. Yeah. Like of the, course. Mo- the modern ones are slightly rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's really, really Quite fun. a sweeping statement, but I'm with you. <laughs> well, no, but like traditionally maybe tradition is a confusing word to use here, but n- in my experience, normally when a ancient evil awakens and old clans have to get together and then there are cars and cell phones and stuff, it's never as exciting as when it's in Chinese markets and temples yeah. and mountain landscapes and like that stuff's so much more conducive to that kind of excitement. And so you've got like these elemental clan bosses, fire, and there's a, an amazing death boss who's dressed up like a sort of weird skeleton chap. Mm. They all control clouds made of the elements that they... Oh, it's just fantastic. Yes. It's really, really fun. That sounds great. Okay, so uh, one of the sort of lovely things about doing this podcast since we moved out, since we moved out, since I moved out, is that Dan and I no longer watch so many films together. It means that I can get recommendations like that from each other. From it's each really other. Nice. Yeah, exactly. So um, my next recommendation is another Simon Rumley film. <laughs> I um, if you were going to do this. Yes, because, purely because... So I watched um, Fashionista and then um, was offered, uh, because of you know, my enjoyment of it, was offered a link to see Crowhurst which is the, the Rumley film that um, recently kind of came and went from cinemas for reasons which I'll get to in a minute. Um, Dan, do you have the, the soap box handy? Because I'm going to stand on it and shout. Bring it up. Um, yeah, so uh, basically Crowhurst is uh, the story of Donald Crowhurst, an ill-fated uh, adventurer who uh, decided to enter a competition to sail across the world, even though he'd never really sailed before. Um, and left behind his family to do this. Now, this film was made before Brexit, but for me, it is the ultimate Brexit movie. Right. It's got some really interesting, surprising musical elements that really kind of tie it to that. Uh, but but the whole thing, like this idea that this man's sense of patriotism and, you know, like sort of misguided optimism led him down... A, a disastrous path where um, 
only pride stopped him from sort of admitting, oh, hang on a minute, you know. I'm out of my debt. I'm out of my debts here. And he just kept going, kept going, kept going. As I mentioned with Fashionista, Rumley is the master of um, representing in, in a psychological states on film. And uh, he really, this is kind of the peak of that. Because obviously a lot of the film is just this guy alone at sea on a boat and the sort of different techniques Simon uses to, to represent sort of the way he's kind of unravelling uh, is absolutely wonderful and beautiful. Um, had quite a profound experience watching this film, like it just kept going, I kept going, oh my God, this is getting better and better and better and, you know, certain directors, um, unique directors, they have this, it's not so much a voice as an atmosphere that each film has this kind of weird quality that you can't put your finger on. And and that's definitely in Crowhurst sort of cranked up a bit. So I'm sorry to any... <laughs> I'm not sorry to... Why would I apologise to a Brexiter? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you're so wrong. I'm sorry, you're an idiot. But, um, you know... <laughs> Watch this film. If you're a Brexiter, watch this film to maybe see yourself represented on film for the first time. And if you're not, then uh, please enjoy this film. The soapbox element is that you may be aware of this story already because it was also in a Colin Firth movie uh, called uh, The Mercy, which was released by Studio Canal. Now, uh, on a you know fairly wide release. Now, Studio Canal also released... Um, Crowhurst mm. the, in a sort of weird kind of I don't know art leaking into life type situation oh is it is it a true story oh yeah it's a true oh, story okay, right. sorry that, I no, should have made right, that clear it's a true story which is uh, yeah insane but in a sort of art imitating life kind of way um, Simon actually finished his film first um, finished his film the better film first Studio Canal bought it and released it after Crowhurst in what uh, appears to me from the outside looking in in the most limited way they could possibly have done it. They released it in like two cinemas. Would they not just forewalling it though? Yeah, no, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah okay. they, they were forewalling it, but um, which, you know, is annoying. For, for those of us who don't know, forewalling is a term used when a distribution company give a film they would not normally release cinematically a very small cinematic run so that it qualifies for a different review section of the various uh, papers and, and, and junkets. And, and this... So they essentially buy out the screenings yes. in advance. So it doesn't, as far as the cinema is concerned, it doesn't really matter if the film makes any money in those screenings. It's a, it's a, it's a promotional spend. And, and, and maybe I should stop talking there in case I get sued. So, um, yes. I, no, I, it's, you're guessing. There's no... Well, I think, there's that, no suing. I think that, that still could get me into trouble, but I'll put it in this non-suable way. Um, <laughs> I feel like there has been, for me personally... Um, the opinions on this commentary are not the opinions of Arrow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, painfully clear yeah, from, yeah. from I, our I, previous catalogue. I, I feel like this film deserved more. It deserved a much bigger release. I know it's weird, but you know it's going to have its audience. People are going to see it. People are going to love it if you give them the chance to see it. And I am desperately hoping that this gets some kind of Blu-ray release. Um, you know, a DVD, fine. 
but you know ideally a blu-ray um because honestly it's one of the films of the year and it, no one's seen it because they couldn't see it because it's in two bloody cinemas um so anyway and is it and was it like vod now like people can watch uh, it no or? not not vod yet okay. um so uh you know when it is i'll i'll mention it on the podcast but um yeah Sorry, Studio Canal. I do, you know, I, I like you normally, and um, we got on very well on You Were Never Really Here. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was just a bit disappointed with how this film, this magnificent film, was treated. Okay, off the soapbox now. Dan? That's it. That's it. Yeah, we're good. Okay, extra features. Extra features. Extra features. So this week's extra features, I don't really have anything new for you, but um, I'm going to dig around in the archives, and I think... I know where it is. Um, I have an audio file from an interview I did recently with Bruce Campbell, which was kind of connected to his book release, but we did kind of an overall career thing. You can read the full article at Digital Spy. Um, I'll link to it when this podcast comes out. I'll link to it on Twitter so you can sort of revisit it. But the reason I'm kind of pulling it out is we talked a bit about Howard Hawks and cowboy movies in general. And so... um, You know, if you listen to our Alfredo Garcia podcast recently, you may find it of interest. And yeah, Bruce is just uh, an amazing person to interview. Um, Was that, uh, were you talking about the adventures of Briscoe County Junior? No, no, it wasn't. Uh, It was just basically, I I know that... He just wanted to talk to him about Ad Hawks. Well, it's kind of like, it's. I know that it's his his dream to make a Western, like a proper, like his, basically his mum loved Westerns. And so he sort of, done bits and pieces in that genre but I think he really wants to do like a a proper one through his own sort of production company so I just kind of got onto the subject of westerns and uh, you can have a little listen here nice Uh, you talk about westerns and your mum's love of westerns yeah I've got a new draft from some writers amazing I really would love to see that what directors do you like in the western world like Sam Peckinpah are you a fan no Peckinpah I love the wild bunch yeah classic cinema classic insane height of his craziness height of his power Sam Peckinpah Uh, with all my favourite actors um Peckinpah's a bit too much though he's a bit too raw yeah yeah uh, John Ford's a little too stiff. Yeah. Um, I do like westerns in general. Yeah, yeah. I like Anthony Mann. He did a couple of westerns where it was, when he wasn't doing film noir, he was doing westerns. Naked Spur was pretty good. Winchester 45. There's some good ones out there. Amazing. Um, I, I actually like John Wayne. Uh, I grew up going to theaters when he was very old and I was very young. Yeah, yeah. And to me, he was always a fat old man. But I, 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 like, I like that guy, regardless of what his whole deal was. And you kind of got similar voices in, in a way. Um, was knows. he an influence on you as an actor? Well, only in that the, of the guys who put their time in on a set. Because yeah. if anybody, he did you know, 50 years on a film set. Yeah, That's yeah. a long time. Yeah. So that was interesting, wasn't it? Bruce Campbell there, and uh, you can read the full interview on Digital Spy. It's very long and very good, even if I do say so myself. Right, that's it. I think that's it. Yes. We're going to tell them what we're doing next time. Yes, we are. So, as mentioned, basically I've chosen both these films for reasons too boring to go into. So rather than sort of taking it turns, I'm doing these two, so Phantom and next week's, and then Dan will do... The, the, the couple after that. So after that. We'll, we'll mention this again. Anyway, 
Next fortnight, we will be doing a little film I like to call The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. So uh, by all means, pick that up on Arrow and uh, join us in two weeks' time um, to have a little chat about it. Yeah, I'm assuming it's already had quite an uptick because of its uh, quite heavy name check in Ready Player One. Well, that's actually that, some... that's exactly um, why I wanted to do it because, um, I, you know, just in case there's anyone out there that's not aware that Arrow hasn't just, you know, put out this disc, they've put out an amazing disc. I figured it'd be worth highlighting yeah. for all those Ready Player One people. So join us in two weeks and thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. And we promise we'll be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.